Hi. Happy Independence Day weekend. Have you been celebrating our nation's freedom well? Do you have all your digits? Good. Uh, I didn't sleep very well last night because I have, uh, I don't know who it is, or I'd pay them a pastoral visit. Uh, but about once every hour, it was just as, like at, almost at the stroke of the hour, they would go outside and light off an enormous firework, like right outside of my window, it would seem. And so if I doze off while preaching, forgive me. I'm just kidding. I don't think that should happen. Lots of you prayed, and we passed court this week. So those are our kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's Madonna on the left, and that's Ali Mahu in the middle, and that's Fabio that's be thinking about putting Ali Mahu in a headlock or something like that. And so their last name is Hopkins now because the judge ordered it to be so uh, on Friday morning real early here. And uh, so now it's about six to eight weeks or so until our embassy appointment and we could go get them then. And we just ask that you would pray on that. Sooner is better than later. So a sooner embassy appointment is better. So please pray if you would. And we're just real grateful for your partnership in that. It means the world to us. And uh, you have a lot of skin in the game of those kids being around here. So let's get them here, huh? And teach them to speak English, right? <laughs> yes, here we go. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to jump into the third message in the series that we call the War of Myths. And uh, this is just a strange narrative. I don't know how else to say it. It's a strange narrative from the book of Mark chapter 5 today. And so let's just read it. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. He's the welcome wagon, right? Rolls out from the cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd, suit, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus. And they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. And he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. 
And if uh, there was a reality TV show entitled Strange Things from the Scriptures, this would certainly be an episode, and it would be a widely watched episode. Imagine how they would reenact that. 2,000 pigs plunging off, you know, spirits coming out of the man and into the pigs and all that. It'd kind of be like a scene from Thriller or something like that, right? We've seen that video. Uh, now, if you've got a... Yeah, 65, Isaiah 65, starting in verse 1. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to flip over there. I want to show you something. Isaiah 65, 1. I was ready to respond. This is God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. All day long I opened my arms to a rebellious people, but they followed their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night they go out among the graves, worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me. I am holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. And so when we consider that text from Isaiah, and we hold it up parallel with the text from Mark, we see some significant parallels in both. We see a demonic influence, first of all, in both of them. We see people out running among tombs and graves in both of them. We see warnings to keep other people away in both. We see reference to pigs in both texts. And you add that all up, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it sketches, it paints out for us this truth, this reality, that Jesus Christ actually came to a place that is earth, that is and was and will be awash in pagan practices, and a place, get this, that for the most part was not calling out to God to come and deliver and rescue and save us. We just weren't, see. This demonized man, he did not invite Jesus to come across the lake so that the demons would be cast out of him. He didn't invite him to come. Yet Jesus came anyway. And so you hold up this Old Testament text alongside this New Testament text, and we get this very real sense of this theological truth of the kingdom of God that scholars call provenient grace. It's a big word, a big phrase, if you will, provenient grace. And that's a very, very complicated way to say this truth, that God searches out those who have never searched for or thought about turning to God. See, he searches us out. He searches them out. He doesn't wait for us to go searching for him. He's actively moving and stirring, inviting us to him. That means that it's God then, see, who takes the initiative in his pursuit of us and his pursuit of all people. Even when we're across a lake in an unholy land filled with swine and demons, he takes the initiative. God searches out those who have never searched for or even thought about turning to him. There is this incredible power inside of God's mercy and inside of his love that scoops our hearts up and captures and transforms those people even to the point of not even believing that there is a God. See, they don't even know that there's such a thing that exists. Might even be resistant to it altogether until God's love and his mercy, his provenient grace, so invades their lives that they are convinced that he's real, that the gospel is true, that Jesus did die to save them. See, 
And so that means for us, we're like, oh, so provenient grace, that's nice. But Christ followers, that means that we must have our eyes wide open, see, to the people who are in our lives, inside of whom God's provenient grace is bubbling up his work, see. Because that's an assignment to you. When you see someone in your life who the activity of God is bubbling up, you shouldn't just stand by and go like, well, somebody better talk to that person about what it means to have a relationship with God. When you see markers or signposts in people's lives that are pointing to this activity of God, that's your homework. That's our assignment, see. We ought not just be sitting back on the sidelines going like, hmm, somebody better do something. Somebody better say something. It's for us. Go. Go. Get into the game of helping people take steps of faith in Jesus Christ. And we all have people in our lives who we go like, you know, they're not in the least bit interested in God. We all have people, right, that we would say that about. They're not in the least bit interested in God. And today on July 5th, that might be true, see. But it isn't necessarily going to stay true because God is going and God is pursuing and God is wooing those very people via his provenient grace, drawing them to himself. And when he does, we'd better have our eyes open. We'd better be paying attention because God is asking us to be a part of his redemptive work that he's doing. You're right. We don't save people, but God does. And he invites us to be a part of that. Now, some of us hear all that and we're like, oh, gosh. You get a little freaked out. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do with an assignment like that from the Lord. Very simply, just ask someone. Just ask someone. You could ask someone on our staff. We'd be delighted to help you with that. Ask somebody in your world who you know has helped someone take steps of faith before. Ask someone, anyone, to coach you through that process. Don't just sit back, arms crossed, watching. Don't. Invite somebody to coach you in that process. Don't ignore God's activity in the life of that person. Please. God's doing something in them via his provenient grace. You might have somebody in mind right now who you're like, oh gosh, I see all the markers in that person's life. I better get up next to him. And you should because he's inviting you to partner with him in that work. Back to the Mark narrative Uh, The story of this demon-possessed man, it unfolds in a region called the Gerizines. We have this map, I'll show you. There it is. See that spot where it says Gergesa next to the red dot across the lake, see? That would have been on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, see? The eastern frontier had been settled by a bunch of veterans of the Roman army. They were given this land, they were given this territory as payment for their service to the army, their service to Rome. Thus, this whole narrative is laced with military imagery. That's not any accident at all. And Jesus goes over to this place. He crosses over the lake very intentionally. And that's a declaration that God's rule and God's grace flings far and it flings wide. It isn't limited to a certain place. It isn't limited to a certain people group. Jesus, by crossing over the lake, is declaring that there is absolutely no place in the world where God's reign does not intend to extend itself to. No territory is off limits, see. And the boat hardly lands on the shore in the region of the Gerizines. Jesus has barely gotten out of the boat, and he encounters almost immediately this demon-possessed man. 
And it just happens wherever Jesus goes. It's almost like his presence is some kind of chemical catalyst that triggers a sometimes sudden and violent reaction from the unholy. Notice that these demons, that they, when they, the demons that possess this man, when Jesus lands on the shore, they never cower in fear, see. But instead they cause the man to rush Jesus. And Mark's description paints for us a picture of a man who is literally as storm-tossed as the disciples' boat had been as they were crossing over the lake. Remember, that happens just before they land. That's where they were going. When the storm comes up, they all think they're going to die, and Jesus calms the sea. The storm that batters that boat is a parallel to this guy's whole life. He lives in an unclean place. He lives among tombs, for crying out loud. He's become home to these evil spirits. It's real likely that he survived by eating food that was left for the dead people in the graveyard, in the cemetery. He ran around in these tattered remnants of clothing. They symbolize the wreckage of this guy's life. The townspeople who live around there, they're freaked out. They try to bind him up, but his strength is so great, he breaks the chains, he breaks the shackles like their cheap kite string. Snap. The Bible talks about the fact that no one was strong enough to subdue him. It's a line right out of the narrative. No one was strong enough to subdue him. That word subdued is translated from a word that actually means tame. A better rendering then is no one was able to tame this man. We go, whoa. When you talk about taming a human being, that's a pretty significant trigger that something very serious is wrong, isn't it? We don't tame human beings. Though, i got to be honest, our four little kids sometimes seems like we're taming them or trying to, right? Just sometimes. Wild animals, though, are to be tamed, not human beings. And this guy, he acts like a wild animal. He's treated like a wild animal, and that's his whole life. That's how he lives. Imagine that. Banished from society, he's an outcast, forced to live among the dead. Interesting that he's forced to live among the dead because those are the only people whose sleep won't be disturbed by this guy's shrieks as he runs about, slicing on himself with sharp rocks day and night. And when you pause and you think about it, his life, this demon-possessed guy's life, is really a microcosm, isn't it, of the whole of creation, right? Romans 8.22 says this, for we know that all creation has been what? Groaning, groaning unintelligible groanings, unintelligible crying out as in the the pain of childbirth right up to the present time, see. He's groaning out for newness and redemption and life and healing just like all of the creation is crying out for redemption and healing and newness of life. It's been going on for as long as sin has been in the world. His life is a microcosm of the whole of creation and that's no way to live. He's condemned to live out all his days all alone in the midst of decay and death. No one to love him. No one for him to love. It's no way to live. And Jesus steps out of the boat and almost immediately then he encounters the unclean spirits that control this guy, that hold him captive. And I don't know what else other word to call them except for their feisty demons. These are feisty demons. First of all, they invoke God's name in an attempt to keep him from tormenting them. 
They're asking God to treat them better than they've ever treated this guy. They've tormented this poor guy beyond any endurance. And it's almost like we see them invoking the name of God to keep the Son of God off of their back, a little bartering. Yeah, we know who you are. Just leave us alone, if you would. But Jesus sees through their tactics. He sees right through. And he pierces right through them by asking them what his name is. But they're feisty demons, so they evade the question. They give Jesus a number instead of a name. Imagine somebody asking you what your name is, and you respond with seven. It's weird. Very weird, isn't it? They do the same deal. My name is Legion. And a legion is the number in a Roman regiment. 6,000 foot soldiers. 120 horsemen. Which stacks up to mean that this guy is the captive of 6,000 plus demons. 6,120 and some horses. And listen to what they do. The evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. See, the demons are worried. They realize that Jesus has their number, see. They realize that Jesus is about to force them to leave their familiar, their very comfortable surroundings. They don't want to go anywhere. They like their turf. They live in a graveyard, for crying out loud. Life is good there for demons. It just is. And not just any graveyard. It's a graveyard in a very pagan land. It's their turf. It's their setting. They want to stay put in this, in this guy, in this place. It's their turf. Now, speaking of turf, I had a pastor friend in town come and see me this week. Uh, he's been in town for a couple of years, and a couple of months ago, a few months ago, he resigned from the church where he was serving. He's kind of been in limbo, trying to figure out what God has next, where and what and so on. And he came to meet with me to let me know that he and a team of people, they're starting a new church right here in Bozeman. And he sat across the desk from me, and he cast this very compelling vision for what his church hopes to be about and accomplish and do and so on right here in the Gallatin Valley. And it was incredibly compelling. I was drawn in. It sounded like he and his team had spent an awful lot of time developing their vision and their mission and their values. And he got to the end of that whole spiel, and I could tell he was sort of sitting there like holding his breath, waiting to see what in the world I was going to say. And I know what this is like because just over four years ago, I sat across a lot of tables from pastors in our community and said, hey, we're going to start a new church in the community. And you always wonder what the pastors are going to say. You never quite know. Are they going to get mad? Are they going to feel threatened? Are they going to bless you and wish you well? Are they going to be ambivalent and say, good luck with that? You just never know. How in the world are they going to respond? And I want to let you in to what I said to my friend because I really want that to be our church community's stance on this whole deal. I said, James, uh, I'll call him James because that's his name. And so I'll just call him by his name. It'd be all right with you. I could have called him Seven, but I thought, nah. I said, James, I just want to tell you, I couldn't be more thrilled that you're starting a church in Bozeman. I'm absolutely thrilled. It takes faith and it takes guts beyond measure to start a new church. And I'm so proud of you and your team. Go for it. Go. Run hard. And here's what I want you to know, that our church called Journey will do everything that we can to help you be successful and fruitful. We'll serve you toward ultimate fruitfulness. 
And I think he sucked all the oxygen right out of my office because that was not the answer he was expecting to hear. He was a little taken aback. And so I just kept going with him. I said, now look, we're in the business of bringing the kingdom of God. Now it's not a business, I'll just call it that, right? Business. We're in the business of bringing the kingdom of God, right? That means then that we do not have turf. Journey Church has no turf in the Bozeman community. We don't have any turf in the Gallatin Valley. We want to see people come to faith and grow up in Christ, and it takes churches to make that happen, see? That means you starting this new church, you are not our competition. You never will be our competition. The devil is our competition. We're your friend We're your partner, and we're in this together, see. And yeah, we absolutely want to see people land in a church community, see. We don't want to see people just milling about from church to church, sort of like spiritual smorgasbords, a little from here, a little from there. We want people to land, and we want people to put roots down. We want to see them grow and reproduce and serve and give and so on, see. But we don't have turf. That means we're not threatened by the coming of another church in our community, especially a church that's going to be about bringing the kingdom of God right here. I said, I hope that the Lord gives me a lot of decades pastoring journey. And I hope in those decades, if the Lord is so gracious to us, that there would be a whole parade of pastors who sit down across the table from me and say, we're starting a new church. We're starting a new church. We're starting a new church. I hope that happens. Because we can't do it all ourselves. As much as we want to, there's 70-some thousand people in the Gallatin Valley who if Jesus came back today would spend forever apart from him. And one of the most effective tools in the belt that God uses to reach people is planting new churches. So bring them on. Bring them on. And we're going to be your partner and we're going to be your friend and we're going to help you. Absolutely. And I even said this. You know, the people who call Journey Church their home, they're not my people. I never think about them as my people. I never call them my people. They're actually God's people. And so you know what that means? That might actually mean that there are people sitting in the congregation at Journey Church who might need to go, who might feel the call to help you start your church. And we'll bless that. And we'll send that. Because we don't have church. We don't don't have turf. And we don't have people. They're God's people, see. They're all God's people. All part of God's kingdom. And we're family. And we think about it as family, see. He laughed after I said that. And he said, you know, it's true that there might be people who come to faith through our church and they end up landing at Journey. I said, that could happen. And that would be fantastic and cool. But we don't have any turf. And so when you hear about this sort of thing, would you talk about it that way? Would you speak words of blessing and life and encouragement? And would you pray over and for and about new churches in our community? We're not scared of them. We're not threatened by them. We're actually delighted to their coming because they're bringing the kingdom and they're inviting people to take steps of faith and they're growing people up in Christ. We need that, a whole lot more of that. And I started talking about that because we were talking about the demons and we were talking about the turf that they thought was their turf. But Jesus has quite another perspective on this whole turf deal, doesn't he? 
The kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring and the kingdom of God that Jesus came to inaugurate lays claim to all the earth, doesn't it? Nothing is and nothing will be untouched by his rule nor by his reign. It is all claimed by him, see? That means the demons can't just carve off a little spot and say, no, this is ours, leave us alone, please. We like it here. Now, at the same time, they lay claim to some turf. They also don't like to just be wandering around. Demons don't without a host, if you will, a host they occupy. Now, they like human hosts best, but in the absence of a human host, a bunch of pigs will work out just fine for them. And they see the writing on the wall. They see that they're about to get evicted. And so they concede that occupying this enormously large herd of 2,000 pigs is better than nothing. So Jesus says, well, have at the pigs. Go for it. And so they do. And we see this verse in 1 Peter 5, 8. You know this verse. Stay alert, the Bible says. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for, looking for someone to devour. It says someone in the text. But I want you to know that it's also very important to note that the devil is also just as ready to devour a herd of pigs as he is a human being. See, demons, they're nothing to be messed around with. Nothing to be messed around with. They create frenzy and they create turmoil in anything and everything they take up residence within. Look at the life of the demon-possessed man. You talk about turmoil and frenzy. And they create a lot of turmoil and frenzy in the lives of these pigs, right? Inside the man, they're able to be one, this united legionary force. But Jesus sends them into 2,000 pigs, and they got to sort of divide and conquer so they can possess all of the pigs. Breaks them up, see. And pigs, they don't have a herd instinct, by the way. And so the demons come in, there's frenzy, there's chaos, and they stampede lemming-like down the bank into the water. The pigs and the evil spirits, they're all destroyed. And so we get to the end of that encounter and we go, ha, joke's on them, right? Joke's on the evil spirits. Joke's on the demons, right? And if you were a Jew looking on this scene or hearing about this scene, it really is a joke. Unclean spirits, unclean animals wiped out one fell swoop at the power of God. And the person who was involved is cleansed, is new, is never the same. Joke's on them. Now we like pigs in our culture, don't we? We, we, we like them. We eat ham and we eat bacon and we even have char characters who we really like. Here's some of them. Mm. Right? Little piglet. Oh, isn't he cute? And then Miss Piggy. Right? Ah, Porky the pig. We forget he's even a pig sometimes, don't we? He's so pleasant. And then how about this one? Babe. Oh, look, the man is caressing the pig. Oh, lovely. Pigs in our culture, they warm our hearts more than they repulse us, right? Unless you go to a pig farm and see what they eat and then have some bacon for breakfast. But when you step inside and understand the Jewish aversion to pigs... 
you understand why when this story circulated, when people would have heard about it near the time of Christ, they would have been actually stirred to cheer. We're like, ah, so the pigs rush down the cliff into the water and they die. We're like, so? Some of us who are more sensitive, we cry. Oh, poor pigs, right? But the Jews, they were cheering. And Jews, just so you know, they don't hate pigs because of God's mandate that they not eat pork. That's not why they hate pigs. They hate pigs because in first century Palestine, the flesh of pigs was actually associated with the persecution, often brutal persecution, of Jews by pagan people who were seeking to wipe them off the face of the earth. In the extra-canonical book of First Maccabees, we see a couple of very graphic descriptions of some Jews who endured this extreme torture, refused to compromise their faith even when they were forced to eat pork, which was meant to be a symbolic rejection of the faith of their fathers, the religion of their fathers. And so that means for Jewish folk, pigs, pork, is the indelible reminder of paganism and persecution. Persecution toward their ultimate demise, even. And so when Jews hear this story, when they looked on this scene, when they caught wind of it, they would have praised and celebrated the pig's demise because they're celebrating God's ultimate vindication over all powers of oppression directed toward them. God wins the day. That's what they're thinking. God wins the day. And we don't have anything like that in our culture, really. We just don't. Probably the closest thing for us would have been if Jesus had cast those demons into like a pack of bubonic plague-carrying rats or maybe a nest of rattlesnakes or maybe one of those colonies of gophers that we're all running over right now, you know? That'd be, that'd be cool. Cast the demons into those things. Sometimes they look like they're demonized, especially after you run them over. Sorry. Graphic. And this encounter with the town folk, it's very interesting, isn't it? The locals who observe and hear about this incredible event, pigs off of a cliff, demonized man made new, it's most interesting that they weren't freaked out most of all by what happened to the pigs, but what freaks them out the most is the very sight of this formerly demon-possessed man who's sitting there on the ground at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. That's what freaks them out the most. Get that. That's what freaks them out the most. They could care less that he's well and healthy and new and healed. They're just freaked out. They respond not too unlike the disciples who on their way over to the region of the Gerizines in the boat, here's what happens. Look at Mark 4.41. This is when the storm comes up and here's what happens. The disciples were absolutely terrified. They were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. The town folk in the region of the Gerizines are freaked out by the power of Jesus, just like the disciples are freaked out by the power of Jesus. And it's interesting that the town folk, they don't want Jesus' power. They want it gone, as a matter of fact. They're not thinking about the people who Jesus could help make well, who could help bring newness to. They're not thinking about that. They just want him to go away. Right? They'd rather have the oddball, demon-possessed, wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood by slicing on himself and screaming violently. They'd rather have him than the guy who made him well and new. And this is challenging, but I think we have to consider it. 
that those townsfolk are a lot like us or we're a lot like them sometimes. Because we're a lot of the times fine when Jesus is changing other people at a distance from our lives. We'll take that. We think that Jesus is cool, great. Look at what Jesus is doing in those people's lives. But when we see our life, when we see our way, when we see our stuff, our turf, if you will, being invaded by one as powerful and unpredictable as Jesus, lots of us want to do the same thing that those townsfolk did. Jesus, just go away, would you please? Jesus, just leave me, please. Jesus, I'll handle this. Jesus, I got it. Jesus, just go. I'll handle this. Why? Because we see our way of life being threatened. And we don't like that. We'll run off the very source of our salvation, the very source of our deliverance, in order to preserve our own dysfunctional systems that really aren't working, but we think they work because it feels like they work. When Jesus could bring redemption and newness and health and healing. And I love how the story concludes. The spotlight of the story, it falls right back to the restored man. Who now, he's not afraid of Jesus anymore, is he? The demons are gone and he doesn't have a problem with Christ anymore. And he's seated now. And being seated, that's the position of a disciple. Did you know that? It's the position of a disciple. Look at Luke 10, 39. Her sister Mary did what? Sat at the Lord's feet. The position of a disciple. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Listening to what he taught. And this guy can't get enough of Jesus now. He begs him, as a matter of fact, to let him go along with him. So there's the position of a disciple which is being seated at the feet of Jesus. The role of a disciple is to go along with Jesus, to accompany Jesus. That's what he wants to do. Look at Mark 3.14. Then he appointed 12 of them, called them his apostles, and they were to what? Accompany him. The position of a disciple is to be seated at the feet of Jesus. The role of a disciple is to go along with Jesus, to accompany him. And Jesus says, "Huh." You gotta go back to your family, dude. You've been away from them for a long time and they think that awful things are happening to you right now. You need to go show them, tell them that you're well. And I love this because the town folk, they think they're getting rid of Jesus altogether, which they are in a sense. But Jesus leaves quite an enormous calling card behind, doesn't he? Jesus is very glad to get the heck out of there himself but he leaves behind this very disturbing evidence of his presence, disturbing to the townspeople, because you've got this infamous man who had a legion of demons possessing him, who's now completely healed, who now completely well, and he stands as a larger-than-life signpost declaring to everyone how he had been delivered and freed by God's mercy. That's fantastic. The plan of the town people to get rid of Jesus' influence altogether, it backfires right in their face, see. No matter what they hope for, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ increases significantly all through those ten towns in the region just because this guy's telling the story of what Jesus did. Is that true of your life? Are you declaring the work of God in your life in such a way that it is a signpost pointing people to him? Do people know your story? How you've been made new and well and 
how you've been healed, how you used to be like this, and how now you're like this, all because of God, not because of Dr. Phil, because of what God did in you. Do you see yourself in that story anywhere? Do you see yourself in that disturbed man, beaten down by others, divided against yourself, a civil war perhaps raging within, living out among the gloomy tombs of life, feeling all alone? Do you see yourself in any of that? One man captured a paraphrase of this demon-possessed man in his response to Jesus. He said this, I feel like 6,000 soldiers are inside of me. Sometimes they all march left. Sometimes they all march right. Sometimes in all different directions. I'm pulled one way, then another. There's an army inside of me, and I think I'm losing the war. Maybe that represents you. And see, if we can just catch a glimpse of ourselves, if we can catch a glimpse of our life, our condition, inside of the story of this demon-possessed man, then we can also see just as clearly that there's help and there's healing and there's deliverance, not just for other people, not just for crazy, demonized, raging lunatics and so on, but that the gospel is for us, see. And the gospel just isn't for us one time when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, but the gospel is for us every single day. Because we don't like to admit it, but we're just as battered as this guy. We just do a lot better job of hiding it behind our well-kept homes, our smart appearance, our coherent words, right? But health and help and healing and deliverance It can be ours, all of ours, but it takes permitting Jesus to actually land on the shore of our lives. We've got to let him land on the shore of our lives. Not just keeping him at bay. Not just keeping saying, I got this. I can handle this. I got it, Jesus, I don't need you. But actually letting him land on the shore of our lives. And that happens in two ways. First of all, it happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, a first time landing on the shore of our lives for Jesus. When we step over the line of faith, and maybe there's some of us sitting here today that we need to do just that. But then after we've been a Christ follower, we must continue to invite and allow Jesus to land on the shore of our lives and do what only he can do in changing us in rooting out the stuff in us that is completely incompatible with what it means to be a Christ follower, putting things down that limit our ability to live in relationship with God, are you letting him land on the shore of your life? Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside if you would. I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just go to prayer if you would. Have a little conversation with the Lord. If I could ask you just to stay in a posture of prayer for these next moments. Are there those of you who are in this room today who aren't yet followers of Jesus Christ? You've not permitted Jesus to land on the shore of your life for the first time. Could I ask you, what's keeping you from doing that today? What's keeping you from experiencing his gospel today, right here, right now? 
Maybe the provenient grace of God has been bubbling up in your life for some time now and you recognize it, you know it, but you've been running from it and you've been hiding from it, trying anyway. He wants you to know today that he loves you and that he's been in pursuit of you and that he longs to live in relationship with you. And you can inaugurate that relationship right here, right now, today. You can do it by praying along with me right where you're sitting. A prayer that goes something like this. God, I know that you love me and I know that you've been pursuing me. And I thank you, God, so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pave the way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know I've blown it. I've sinned. And yet, God, you are perfect and you are holy. And my sin has separated us. But God, I believe with everything in me that because of your love, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for that sin, to pay the price. And would you please, God, by Jesus' death, forgive me? And would you please send Jesus to live inside of me? And would you please clean me up? And would you please change me? And would you please become my friend, God? That decision to give your life to Jesus Christ, to permit Jesus to land on the shore of your life for the first time is the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more and nothing carries more weight. It's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision. And it's simple. It's not embarrassing. I'm just going to ask you to do it with me. Nobody's looking around this room except me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up make eye contact with me and just say yes I invited Jesus to land on the shore of my life today just be real bold and slip your hand up and make eye contact with me you can sure do that now right there way to go God's changing you right now God, we just love you. And we're overwhelmed by this truth that you pursue us and you're pursuing all of humanity. You wish, God, that none would perish. And we pray that your provenient grace would abound in the lives of people in our lives who are far from you, God. Help our eyes be wide open. May we see your activity and may we run toward your activity, to be involved, to be a part, to be your mouthpiece, God. May we not miss the assignments that come from you that way. And God, for those of us who have been keeping you at bay, who have been asking you just to stay in the boat off of the shore of our lives because we're handling stuff just fine on our own, convict us of that, please. Move us to a place of brokenness and repentance an invitation saying, Jesus, I actually need you in this place with this issue. I desire your newness and your healing and your help, Father. May we take radical action to do whatever we gotta do 
that reorders our life in such a way that you tell us to, God. Because we want to obey you. We want to please you. Because our lives are yours, all yours, Jesus. And we thank you. Thanks for making us your kids. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the ultimate bringer of the kingdom of God. And the church said, Amen.